I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised, a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I respond to a few questions I've received about things I've said previously. I mention a super fun book I finished recently, and I talk about the complex character of idolatry in the Bible and how that gives us a lens through which we can identify the many idolatries that lurk in our lives and in our culture. First, I want to get to some questions uh, that folks have written to me. And uh, by the way, thanks for getting in touch. I said uh, in the first episode that the reason I'm doing this is to generate good conversation and to find some conversation partners. So thank you for taking up that invitation. So Connor wrote me uh, asking about prayer and especially about how um, individualism may have shaped our praying and uh, what would thinking from the perspective of the church, how, how would that shape our praying? Well, there's a thousand things that I would love to say about prayer uh, because we don't think about praying enough. Not that, not that we don't pray enough necessarily. I don't know that we do or don't. I have no idea. Um, uh, but just that we don't think about prayer. Uh, we, we sort of follow the habits that we've received unthinkingly, and we pray very often without our minds engaged, without thinking about what we're doing or um, thinking about the one to whom we're praying. Anyway, I won't get off on too many tangents, but just a couple things uh, to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, prayer really is the language of the church in speaking to God and communicating with God. Um, and, and that's really the, the appropriate context for praying. Not that individual prayer is a bad thing, uh, but the early church was together all the time just because of their mode of life. They were meeting together throughout the week, uh, gathering together daily very often. And um, you know, prayer was at the very center of that. Uh, with our lives so divided and fractured the way they are in the modern world, it's hard to even conceive of, of that being the case necessarily. But when it comes to praying, just a couple of thoughts here. Uh, first of all, I think it's important to keep the us and the our and the we in mind when we pray. That is uh, conceiving of the church, even, our, even in our own private praying. Um, solitary prayer is a great practice. Keep in mind that it's not just asking God for things for me. Uh, keep the entire church in mind. Um, but especially uh, in reconfiguring my thinking away from myself as the solitary person, um, I need to look around. And I think that even our, with regard to our church communities, we need to look around at our larger culture and ask the question, where are we located in culture? Um, sort of how I mentioned last week with regard to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has that dynamic where it's moving us all around. So if I'm uh, a person located uh, in, a, in a, a higher social status, the kingdom of God is working on me to bring me low. And if people who are uh, of lower status, the kingdom of God is working on them to bring them up so that we are all situated next to each other in relationships of mutuality, commonality, siblingship, and um, partnership. Uh, the kingdom of God is is a dynamic that's leveling uh, the social hierarchies that our corrupted cultures have kind of put us into. And we have to have that in mind when we pray. 
um, if I'm a person that has uh, needs largely met, if I'm a person that you know has a lot, am I the kind of person that needs to be praying for what I perceive are my needs? And am I even thinking about, you know, quote unquote, my needs rightly? Um, I may be a person with plenty relative to the rest of the world, uh, but if, I, if I'm only focused on my needs or what I need, I may need to have my vision corrected. Um, from God's perspective, do I really need a lot? So if I'm just asking for things, that's, that's problematic. Um, and I need, to, I need to actually consider that uh, I might be a person whose prayers God does not hear. And our church, the church that I belong to, may be uh, a, a social unit whose prayers God does not hear. Now, that may sound kind of shocking, but uh, when you think about the prophets, the prophets are loaded with statements about how God has shut up his ears to his people because they've become an unjust people. They have not been um, participating in the leveling work that God is doing among them, but hierarchies have developed. And Israel did not look out for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Um, they were not caring for the land properly. And because of that, God shut up his ears to his people. He was not listening to them. And um, uh, Micah, um, plenty of other prophets, uh, tell God's people, when you get together and you have these you know, awesome times of worship and praise, and you, you love hearing preaching and all this kind of stuff, just so you know, I hate it. I hate it when you gather. I hate your music. I hate your burnt offerings. It's a these are there's a stench in my nostrils. So um, we need to keep in mind that we may be part of larger patterns that uh, are corrupted in our culture. We may be caught, even though you know I as an individual may have good motives. I might be a good person. The people in my church may be wonderful people, but are we caught in patterns of injustice? that um, make us the kind of people that God does not hear. Um, this should make us uncomfortable, I think. Uh, Isaiah, God says through Isaiah to uh, Israel that, um, you know, look at you people. Some of you have built additions onto your houses, but there are people down the road or across town who are homeless. How could you do that? Those are the kind of people whose prayers God does not hear. Um, so if I have that in mind, I want to be looking around my town and noticing, uh, you know, there's a mega church in town that just spent tens of millions of dollars on facilities upgrades and, uh, a new video screen and all of that. I'm sure that they told themselves we're doing this to enhance our times of worship. Well, what does God think of that? When just, uh, three miles down the road, there's a massive, um, housing problem uh, going on in our city. There are homeless families. There are people being uh, uh, um, evicted from their homes. There are children going hungry. According to the prophets, uh, God attends to that. That That is high on God's priority list. That is big on God's mind and heart. So if people who call themselves God's people don't care all that much about that, are they the kind of people that when they pray, God hears? Um, Peter gets at this. Peter calls on this uh, Old Testament tradition when he tells husbands that if they mistreat their wives, their prayers are going to be hindered. 
in the book of Revelation, uh, the exalted Lord Jesus says through John uh, to several churches, if you don't repent from your unjust practices, I'm going to leave. I'll take away the lampstand. That is, my presence will depart. And I've often wondered, I mean, just looking at these clear passages, um, are some of our churches, churches in name only, but are actually just buildings that God has long since departed? Um, so in answer to your question, uh, Connor, when I think about um, my place in a larger culture when it comes to praying, and when I think about uh, the larger dynamics of the church and the people of God, those are some things that I keep in mind. Am I the kind of person that should be praying for my needs, or should I re-examine my life to see whether I actually have needs, or do I see them as needs, but really they're desires for career advancement, um, or for greater prestige, or for, I think that my kid needs this, so I'm praying for that, but do I just do I have uh, problems of idolatry thinking that I just want to look better? I want my family to look good in my community. Um, people who have needs around my city are people who are hungry and homeless. Um, I frankly, I don't have a whole lot of needs. Um, a lot of the people in my church don't have a whole lot of needs. Uh, I've got food in my fridge. I've got a comfortable bed. Uh, I've got a climate controlled environment in which I live, my house, I can control the temperature in it. That's a whole lot of power and privilege. Um, so, you know, I've done some of that self-examination to sort of rethink this. Um, honestly, one of the first, or one of the things that I've been doing recently uh, at church is, um, you know, while the preacher is just uh, going on about something or other, I with all that's going on and, and coming to a, a clearer vision of the injustices that fill our culture and in which I'm caught up in and many and my church is caught up in, these are large uh, cultural patterns that are, that are just difficult to know what to do about. I've taken a posture of lament uh, during church and of confession of sin and just sort of thinking a lot about Isaiah's uh, statements, uh, his, his statement that, um, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And uh, just recognizing America's place in the world and my being part of that, uh, I've taken to praying in church, I, Lord, I am a man of violence, and I dwell among a people of violence. Lord, I'm a person with blood on my hands, and I dwell among a people with blood on my hands. So... Um, I'm doing a lot of lamenting these days and confession of sin and confession of sin of my people um, because I'm just noting a lot of that these days while also taking time uh, to give thanks for all the good things that I enjoy in my life. So anyway, Connor, thank you for that uh, great question, uh, reconfiguring, um, thinking about prayer from larger dynamics, not only in our world, but reflected in scripture. Okay, uh, another question from Wes, uh, who asked a question again about individualism. And um, uh, he, well, I'll just read the question here. Uh, should we think of our faith in purely collective social language, or is there room for personal conviction, movements of the spirit that might be different than what our community is doing? 
Personally, I feel that the church and Christians don't take seriously enough the question of what God is doing in your, in your life. So I had said last week, um, you know, we sort of narrate our lives individualistically, thinking, you know, what is God doing in my life? Or I have a friend that had often asked me this, you know, what is God doing in your life? So anyway, just to keep quoting uh, Wes, and just go along with whatever, or do we just go along with whatever the Christian fad is at the time? But in my experience, it's far easier to do the right things and likely burn out than be the kind of person who would do the right things because your character and faith is formed by self-examination and abiding in the presence of a loving God. And he uh, cites John 15. Well, thank you for that, Wes. Great questions. Um, I think, again, this just reflects the difficulty that we have getting our our minds out of an individualistic frame of mind. Um, but this, I'm, I totally take this seriously, Wes, as an honest question of, of trying to find what, what place do we have uh, in thinking about ourselves as individuals over against the community, in reference to the community. Well, a few thoughts about this. Um, and just to relay a little bit of how um, my mind changed over the years in, in uh, grappling with how the New Testament portrays things. First of all, this shocked me many years ago, uh, but the Holy, uh, the New Testament has very little to say about the Holy Spirit in reference to individual believers. In the New Testament, the work of the Spirit is community-oriented, and what the Spirit does is unites the church to Christ and unites the church together. It, the Spirit unites us to one another to form us into one organic body. That's the church's, or sorry, that's the Spirit's role is to form the church and to animate the church. And a number of texts that go, uh, that run along this line have been interpreted in my tradition, in my evangelical tradition, individualistically. Passages like uh, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command that Paul gives to the corporate church to truly be the dwelling place of God on earth, to be the temple, to be the place that God's presence fills by the Spirit. We've interpreted that, interpreted that individualistically very often um, to sort of get at the Spirit's personal empowerment. That's not what Paul is getting at. Uh, Galatians 5 is another one of these uh, with um, Paul's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, that's a corporate text. All the works of the flesh are corporate behaviors, corporate corrupted behaviors. The fruit of the Spirit are um, renewed and redeemed behaviors that the Spirit is producing in the church with one another, you know, people with one another um, behaving in redemptive ways. Another passage that's been interpreted individualistically is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, where Paul tells the Corinthian church, you are the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. Um, the newest NIV update captures this really, really well uh, in its translation. But um, the you know, older translations um, just said, you know, you are the, do you not know that you are uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit? What we have uh, missed in our English translations is that in Greek, the you is plural. You all are the temple. So, uh, you know, in light of how the New Testament talks about the work of the Holy Spirit on the church, um, I'm kind of skeptical of notions of the Holy Spirit's work on individuals, since the New Testament doesn't really address that. Um, my being caught up in the work of the Spirit is what God is doing among uh, His corporate people. Um, 
And Wes mentioned John 15, and that's another passage that uh, is often used to sort of talk about um, uh, sort of a two-stage spirituality. Like, um, you know, and John 15 is the passage that talks about abiding in Christ. Uh, so we, we've often understood this to mean that, you know, I get alone privately and commune with God, or I get myself to a place where I'm tapped into the vine and um, get myself prepared and get myself ready. And then I go out being empowered, abiding in Christ to then um, have power for ministry or power for, for Christian action. Um, but that way of thinking about abiding in Christ actually misconstrues what Jesus says. All that talk about abiding in Christ, you know, abide in me and you will bear fruit in uh, John 15, 1 to 9, um, is very metaphorical. And then at the end of it, Jesus says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So the way we abide in Christ is not by getting alone privately and getting uh, into a sort of a spiritual connection with Christ and then go out and obey. The obedience to Jesus's commands is the abiding in him. And then in verses 12 to 17, he clarifies what it means to keep his commands, and that is to love one another. So abiding in Christ is something that happens in the context of Christian community. Now, um, with regard to uh, private internal reflection and uh, sort of a, uh, an, in, an individual spirituality, I think that's really important. I do a lot of time, I spend a lot of time uh, doing personal, um, alone, you know, sort of self-examination, self-excavation, uh, personal self-reflection on my own internal dynamics. Um, but I do that in order to prepare myself to receive all the good gifts that other, others have to give to me throughout the day and to sort of situate myself so that I am a gift to others when I encounter them throughout the day. But it's not the case that... Um, my alone time is my time with God so that I can have power to encounter other people. It is the case that my encounters with other people is my opportunity to encounter God. That's actually how uh, the New Testament configures things. In Mark 9, um, Jesus talks about when the church welcomes the marginalized, they're actually welcoming Christ. It's not that the church has Christ, and then sort of goes out and does good things to other people. It's when the church actually invites and welcomes and honors the marginalized that they are welcoming and honoring Christ and God. So uh, I think we need to sort of reconfigure things there. I think personal quiet time of preparation and self-reflection is seriously important. Um, but I and I don't want to deny that that might be time with God in to, to some extent. But it's also the case that when we are participating uh, in the larger community and relating to others, that is also uh, participation in Christ and participation in God. We're sort of enveloped in the larger work of the Holy Spirit through those encounters, uh, which can be great opportunities of giving gifts and receiving gifts from other people. Um, and just finally, this is why I don't like that expression, you know, what God is doing in your life. Um, I, someone, like I said, I had a friend who would ask me this and, um, you know, it just sounds so spiritual. And I, over the years came up with, uh, you know, some kind of spiritual answer. 
But after a while, I just began to say, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and there's some reasons for that. Uh, I may not be the best interpreter of what God is doing in my life. And I'm not sure that God is necessarily acting in my life apart from my relationships with the church, because that's the New Testament portrayal. Um, also, my life is not the arena of God's action. The arena of God's action is the church. And I get in on that. I'm swept up into and sort of uh, swallowed up into this larger life-giving dynamic of how the how God's new people relate with one another and relate in life-giving ways. So um, I think that, you know, that larger uh, narrative that many of us have as evangelical Christians is very individualistic. You know, my life narrative with God, my relationship with God, my relationship with Christ. Um, I think that all of that is problematic. And as I've said before, it's far more reflective of like a Disney narrative of, or like an American upward mobility narrative. It's not the same as the New Testament's narrative of God's life on earth lived among the people of God. And we get in on that. And there's a sense in which when I read the New Testament, I already know what God is doing. It's not a mystery. God is uniting his people together. And we get in on that by creatively forming relationships that um, foster that unity, um, that get swept up into the Spirit's dynamic of knitting us together ever more uh, tightly and intimately. God has created this one new organic community, the church, and we know what he's doing. He's, he's loving it. He's pouring out his life on it. And we enjoy that through um, strategies that further uh, that, that intimate unity. So anyway, Wes, thank you for that. Uh, I'm happy to continue the conversation on that if you'd like. Um, thank you for your great question. Um, finally, I got two really thoughtful questions from Isaiah and from Tim about uh, leaving a church and both relayed some really great thoughts, um, some painful experiences that led to uh, long-term wrestling about eventually leaving a church. And um, Tim, Tim, uh, I know his story. We're having dinner next week, so we'll, we'll have lots more to talk about when it comes to all this. Uh, Tim and I don't really have any short and shallow conversations. It'll be rich and um, in, invigorating over uh, some great food, no doubt. Um, but they, they asked about um, you know, how to leave a church, or, or perhaps there are times when it's appropriate to leave the church. And um, I, I have to say, because I mentioned this last week, I have to say that I hesitated to even say anything about that, because I know that that raises a whole host of questions um, that anybody would have coming from a, a thousand different uh, experiences. So I, I, I don't really have anything to say to that. And every every experience is different. There are some abusive situations, some church cultures that are just toxic. Um, some I don't know. I, I can't address every situation. So Tim and I'll have a lot more to say about that. Um, but just briefly, one or two thoughts. Um, the reason that I hesitate when it comes to this is I'm always wanting to kind of skewer and test and probe our common assumptions about how we think. And many of us do think about leaving a church. And I, I think a lot of our reasons are really bad, while many reasons may be good. 
Um, and I want to always be reorienting my thinking away from um, how we typically think and have that match the New Testament vision of how things are portrayed. And in the New Testament, the New Testament does not conceive of Christian existence apart from the church. So thinking about leaving one uh, for whatever reason ought to be a very painful process if we are body parts, like I said previously, I'm I'm an I'm an elbow. Um, I can't think about life without a hand and without a shoulder and without the rest of the body. Um, and if I were to leave a church, I I think it would be crucial to find some other community to be a part of because that, on the New Testament vision, is how we receive life from God. It does not happen apart from being connected to a body. And I'm also, uh, the, one of the other reasons I have just wanted to uh, test some of our assumptions is I'm very wary of how American culture has shaped all of us, and because it, it has shaped me this way, um, to be a shopper. Um, we shop for stuff. I, I'm always on the lookout for the best granola. I mean, that's now settled because my uh, partner, Sarah, makes the absolute best granola that I've ever had in my life. Um, but I'm always on the lookout for the best hummus. Go to the store and I select different brands, test them out, go with, uh, I choose which one I like the best. And that's so often how we live so many parts of our lives. And I've just noticed that very many of us as Christian people are shoppers when it comes to thinking about our churches. And we, we look at all that it has to offer us. We evaluate what we like best. Um, we might say something like, well, there's just not enough here for us as a family. Uh, there are not enough activities that other church seems to be having a lot of great things going on. Um, and of course, we always dress this up in Christian language. We say, well, I'm not, I'm not being fed. Um, and so I just want to, I want to sit for a while with the New Testament and probe some of those typical assumptions. And I've sort of come to the conclusion, well, I've, I've come to the conclusion that um, leaving a church ought to be a far more dramatic and traumatic and painful uh, sort of thing than just sort of flippantly uh, coming and uh, uh, going to places or leaving a place for whatever reason. And just to say again, that is not to deny that there are many situations where it's the appropriate thing uh, to remove yourself from a, from a community. And I know several stories of people that have gone to great lengths um, to, uh, you know, reconcile or to bring themselves to a place where they can actually stay at a church, but for one reason or another have had to leave. Well, thanks you all for these uh, great questions. I'm, I'm happy to keep the conversation going. You're welcome uh, to email me or contact me at any time. Would love to hear from you. I want to tell you about a book. This is not a paid advertisement, but you know, if a Chipotle gift card showed up in my mailbox, I wouldn't object. But the book is called Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness by Melissa Dahl. Now, this is the kind of book that I, I read uh, maybe about two of these a year. Um, I love reading books by science journalists who, do, uh, a, a, who can sort of engage uh, research in a couple of related areas and then relate that uh, to something that we all experience. 
I can't read science journal, uh, you know, science research. I hated science in school, uh, never was good at it. Um, so I depend on people like this to help me out. I've read uh, a couple of books over the last couple of years on uh, the science of sleep, which is fascinating to me. Even more fascinating, read a book last year on uh, dreams and what uh, scientific research can tell us about dreams and why we dream. But this book is about those awkward moments that we all experience in life. And um, those kind of things fascinate me because I've always wondered about how social rules develop. Um, just because of my own work in the New Testament, which has so much to do with social relationships, um, I've thought, you know, why do we greet each other in certain ways? What, you know, what are the rules about, uh, you know, when you're walking out a long hallway, when, you know, and there's only one other person walking towards you, like when when's the appropriate time to wave and all that kind of stuff? And what are the social conventions that develop around basic greetings throughout the day? Well, she gets into a ton of that. And um, especially why our bodies and minds react the way they do. Why do we feel uncomfortable um, when we're embarrassed? And what are the dynamics going on with embarrassment? Um, it was really interesting. She did a lot of um, uh, talking with uh, and digging into uh, psychological research on emotions and um, uh, also did a lot of other sort of field work. She visited uh, a program which I wouldn't, never think of doing this, uh, which is absolutely nuts. Um, but there's something going on around the country where groups of people get together. And in order to just like ratchet up the cringiness, they uh, read from their junior high journals, which is insane. Um, but she gets under sort, sort of unpacks uh, what is going on in our minds and in our bodies uh, during these awkward encounters. And uh, one of the things I learned uh, from her work is that some of these um, moments uh, where we feel very uncomfortable, like if we have to speak in front of other people, um, cause our bodies to react and sort of cause our minds to race. And uh, we often feel that we're having an emotional reaction to that. But um, really, our emotions in many ways are just our ways of thinking about what's happening to our bodies and how they react in those kinds of moments which she goes on to say is great news because you can actually inform yourself or you can actually sort of tell your emotions what they're feeling. And she recommends that in moments like that, instead of feeling uh, anxious or telling yourself that you're feeling anxious or assuming that you're feeling anxious, instead, turn it into excitement. So when you're going to get up in front of somebody and make a presentation and you feel nervous about it, just repeat the mantra, this is so exciting, which uh, really struck a chord with me because I do not like being around large groups of people. And I especially do not like ever getting up in front of groups of people, which is something of a challenge because uh, that's my job is to teach. And um, uh, I've had all those uh, feelings of, uh, you know, crushing self-awareness and cringeworthy moments and of feeling awkward most of the time. And uh, so this was a fun exploration of, of loads of that, uh, sort of un, uh, lifting up the hood on why it all happens. And um, also a measure of comfort, realizing I'm not alone. A lot of people feel like this, and we're all sort of together in our fears. Anyway, if you're looking for a fun summer read, we've still got several weeks of summer left. Pick up Cringeworthy 
a theory of awkwardness and pick it up from an independent bookstore. So I want to talk about idolatry. Idolatry in the Bible is a, uh, it's a complex reality. There are a lot of facets to it. And for me, it's become a very helpful rubric in understanding, you know, a helpful lens in understanding uh, many aspects of my life, um, many aspects of my, uh, the culture in which I was raised. And uh, it's helped me to see uh, that our American culture is loaded with idolatries uh, there's a sense in which it's, you know, there's, it was sort of founded on an idolatry from the very beginning. And it's an idolatry that has uh, seduced my inherited culture of white evangelical um, Christianity, uh, certainly uh, conservative. Um, but really, uh, as Lee Camp's book, Scandalous Witness, shows, all aspects of Christianity in America, pretty much, have been seduced into this idolatry. And um, it's worth really probing uh, extensively and really giving sustained attention to. And uh, in a sense, this topic is why I wanted to do a podcast, um, because I wanted to explore facets of it. And to do that uh, on a blog, just it felt overwhelming because there are so many facets to it, so many implications of it in culture, and um, kind of hard to get, uh, sort of hard to wrestle it down to the ground in writing form. So I thought I would uh, use this format to kind of bring some thoughts together. Uh, what's interesting about idolatry in the Bible is that um, it is it is not the case that this is idolatry. It's not the case that um, you know Israel becoming an idolatrous nation, biblical Israel becoming an idolatrous nation in in the Old Testament. It's not the case that they turned 180 degrees away from the one true God and began to uh, follow idols, or you know other gods. Um, the turn to idolatry is so subtle in the Bible. It's an incredibly subtle reality, which means we've got to really examine um, idolatry in the Bible carefully and examine the idolatries that lurk in our lives and in our culture and in our subculture um, very carefully and soberly and extensively um, to see how we've been caught in idolatries. They just they sort of overtake us very, very subtly. Um, and I want to start uh, uh, with a text. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's a bunch of places that we could go to for this, and I will, I'll mention several texts. But there's one that I've found uh, really helpful and very challenging, especially when it comes to the main idolatry that uh, we wrestle with. Um, and I'm speaking of um, people in America and certainly of white Christians in America. The idolatry of um, associating the Christian God with America. So I'm talking about Christian nationalism or the assumption uh, that America is a Christian nation or that in some way uh, America is the nation on earth uh, to which God is most attentive or that is most associated with Christianity in some way, that God you know, gives special attention to this country. Um, but I want to I want to sort of get at this and a, and a load of other realities uh, that go along with idolatry by looking at uh, Hebrews 12, um, 25 to 29. And um, just to say that the big point I think that uh, the writer of Hebrews is making here in capturing what's happening with idolatry 
is that idolatry involves an inappropriate association of God with any created thing. And uh, the subtlety comes um, when that created thing is something that is that we love, that that is the manifestation of our highest uh, ambitions and aspirations and something beautiful and something extraordinary. Um, that it becomes so tempting to associate God uh, with what we think is beautiful, but that inevitably, um, involves us in an idolatry. And uh, in his exhortations to his audience, um, the writer of Hebrews uh, draws on this in, in a familiar text that I think is really, um, I think, so applicable today uh, for Christians in America, especially for white Christians in America, that, um, and also, I think, opens vistas onto other aspects of our lives that we can examine. So here's uh, the end of Hebrews 12. The writer says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So there's some kind of exhortation being given to that community specifically that they uh, need to heed. Um, they need to give very special attention to this. It may involve in some way some loyalty to Jerusalem and to the Jerusalem temple um, that the writer is, is trying to sort of get them uh, to reconsider. Verse 26, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, it appears that in some way, um, the writer of Hebrews is trying to get the, this church, this community, this Jewish Christian community, um, to realize that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, or that this may have been written just after it was destroyed, and they they need to let it go. They need to realize that even if the temple and the city are destroyed, they still have a connection with God. And this would have been um, a very sensitive issue, um, a, a fundamentally existential issue uh, for the for these uh, Jerusalem Christians, because for you know over a thousand years, their connection with God was maintained through the operation of the temple. Um, and so, in some way. Their identity, uh, their Jewish identity, and their identity as Christian people is some you know is being stressed. That they're sort of having to decide between the two of those in some way. Um, so Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and they need to let it go. And the writer is here uh, letting them know that if they don't let it go, they are becoming idolaters. That is to say, if they don't you know, let go of Jerusalem, let go of the temple, realize that that is not how their relationship with God is maintained, they are becoming idolaters. And uh, the reason I say that is based on that final uh, statement that the writer makes in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that quotation uh, comes from Deuteronomy 4. And uh, I think that what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is uh, by simply by quoting that, he's calling on um, the larger 
stretch of text that that is a part of. And um, it, that, uh, st uh, that statement is part of a larger stretch of text that runs from Deuteronomy 1 to 4, and I encourage you all to read it. Uh, in that passage, uh, Moses is sort of uh, you know, speaking to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the land, and um, he's, he's exhorting them. He's giving them this long speech, and uh, he, hits this, he hits these two themes constantly throughout this long speech. One of those is that Moses is not going to be able to go into the land with them. And the other is that when they go into the land, they need to be very careful to not make images. Don't make images. Um, I mean, reading that today, we might think, okay, got it, no worries. Um, but in the ancient world, this would have been the temptation. I mean, to have to be a people that worshipped a god, all the peoples of the earth had images in their temples of the unseen transcendent God. And Israel is the only people that have a temple, but they don't have images um, because humans are God's image. And they are not to associate the transcendent God with anything that they create. That is idolatry. But that would have been what that would have been the most natural thing to do. That is to make something beautiful, something attractive, something impressive something uh, elaborately created or something huge and associate that uh, with the transcendent God. The, um, but Moses tells them, resist that urge, uh, which would have been the most natural thing in the world. That would have been, that's what everybody does. So several times Moses repeats, um, I can't go into the land with you and do not make images. Now, what is it that those two things have in common? Well, what they have in common is the inappropriate association of God with anything else, with anything within creation other than the human. And um, what's really interesting here is that, um, I mean, you know, if you uh, have read the Old Testament, you know what's going on with why Moses cannot go into the land. Uh, it was because of the um, what Moses did uh, at the incident when the water came out of the rock. Um, the Israelites were complaining. Uh, they were hungry and thirsty. And so God uh, told Moses, speak to the rock in the book of Numbers. Speak to the rock and you know water will flow out of this. And uh, Moses just, you know, you people in ministry out there and you pastors, you know how Moses was feeling. Uh, he's fed up with the Israelites, and he goes to the rock, and he strikes it. And um, that's not what Moses did wrong. That's not why uh, Moses was not allowed to go into the land. What Moses did is recorded in Numbers 20, uh, verses 9 through 13. Uh, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Uh, he was supposed to speak to it, but he just like banged on that thing. Um, again, you pastors, you understand this. Uh, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. 
But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord, and he proved himself holy among them. What Moses did wrong there is what he said. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? So Moses did not associate himself with the people of Israel in relation to God. He associated himself with God in relation to Israel. That is idolatrous. That's, that's an inappropriate association. And that is why Moses was not able to go uh, into the land uh, along with the Israelites. So um, what's also interesting here is that at the very end of the speech um, in Deuteronomy 1-4, to where, where Moses is constantly exhorting the people, don't make images, and you know that I can't go with you. Um, this is how uh, Moses concludes that uh, from verse 21. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account and swore that I would not cross the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I will die in this land, I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. And here comes... For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So when the writer of Hebrews uh, quotes that, uh, that character of God as a God of judgment and a God of purifying and a God who is jealous, um, what he's doing is he's calling on that whole narrative involving idolatry, that um, his audience is not to associate the transcendent God with anything on earth. And for uh, the audience that is hearing this letter from the writer of Hebrews, um, you know, the, the cash value of that is they are not they are not to associate God with the temple. God, uh, you know, in the gospels, uh, at, at the death of Christ, when the temple veil is torn, that is God passing judgment on the temple. Um, Jesus, when he confronts the temple authorities, um, you know, he curses the fig tree and then goes into the temple and passes God's judgment on them because they have turned the temple into a haven for thieves. It's become a place of oppression of God's people rather than a place of refreshment for God's people. And so God has abandoned it and he has passed judgment on it. And so when the writer of Hebrews writes to these Jewish Christians, he tells them, uh, let it go. Let this thing go. This this institution that you have grown comfortable with associating the God of Israel with for over a thousand years, God is moving on. And it is going to be judged. There's going to be the shaking of heaven and earth and the temple, the institution that God called home for so long, the temple is not going to survive that. It, it belongs to um, this earthly order and it is going to be shaken with the shaking of the earth, and it is not going to survive. And the writer of Hebrews tells this Jewish Christian audience, um, you, are, you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
you belong to the heavenly city that this, this heavenly city that will come to earth one day. So I mean, we belong to the earth. Um, but he's telling them you have another home and it's not this. So do not associate God with any earthly institution. Um, so just to say, um, if God does not want his people associating him with this building that he did associate with at one time, how much more when we apply this in our day as, as a, uh, Christians living in America, how much more should we resist um, the association of the Christian God with America, with this earthly nation, this earthly construct? This nation is the creation of humans. It's, this, it's a fiction um, where people have come here and we have all agreed uh, to sort of call this place America. We've all agreed on a constitution and, you know, it, it, it's a fiction and it's, it's a part of this earthly creation and it is idolatry to associate it with the Christian God, the God who is revealed in Jesus and the God who, um, uh, who's, who called Israel out of Egypt. It is idolatrous to associate God with America. Um, and I think it's important to point that out because I know that the culture that I grew up in had this implicit narrative of America as a Christian nation. And I grew up with this um, sense of nostalgia, looking back on a time when America was Christian. And we told ourselves that in order to make sense of our present uh, identity and expected mode of behavior. Like we are a people who are called by God to retake America for God. To, to you know to sort of bring it back to God and to see God glorified in America once again um so many of us have grown up with the association of the cross and the American flag I mean many of our churches have American flags in their churches or out in front of their churches the first century church would have seen that as outright idolatry Jews uh, around the time of the first century um, just there were there was uproar in Jerusalem. Uh, this was basically sparked the Jewish rebellion when uh, the Romans brought their uh, Roman standards and put them in the temple. Basically, you know, putting an American flag in the church. It's the same thing. The symbols of Rome and of the Roman army, associating that with uh, the God of Israel, uh, what you know sparked violence. In the temple because Jews saw it for what it was. Uh, but many of us are very comfortable having American flags uh, in our churches. And that's that would be um that would be seen basically as blasphemy and idolatry by the first century church if they were you know visiting our churches. Um but we we've all grown up with this, many uh, white Christians anyway, have grown up with this notion that America at one time was Christian, and it's our task to sort of get it back on track. Um, I think that this is why, but wait, by the way, that is a lie. That's not a proper uh, way of remembering um, our American past. Um, certainly the Bible played a central role in so much of the formation of American culture uh, since the arrival of white European Christians here um, so many centuries ago. Um, but idolatry was present from the beginning. Um, uh, John Fee gets at this in his book, um, Believe Me. When he goes back to John Winthrop, um, I can't remember the year, 
um, the 1600s, I think, uh, when John Winthrop landed on these shores and uh, preached that sermon talking about America as a city on a hill and blending um, biblical language with the establishment of a, uh, 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 of a new nation that would be a uniquely Christian nation and have a unique relationship with the Christian God. That is outright idolatry from the beginning. Um, but the, that narrative that America was a Christian nation and we need to return to it is why so many Christians um, hear the current president's talk uh, about making America great again. And it resonates with how many of us have been raised uh, among white evangelical culture, because we too have this kind of nostalgia narrative that looks back to a time in the past when things were as they ought to have been. But keep in mind that there's another group of people that um, make America great again resonates with, and those are uh, militant white supremacist groups, because they're also uh, wrapped up in this kind of nostalgia for a past um, when non-white people weren't here or when non-white people were slaves. So if Christians resonate with that kind of a message, um, that is that is idolatrous, and it also is a message and a notion that divides Christians, because um, black Christians hear that desire for us to go back to a day in the past, and uh, the past for America, not only that, but the present, but uh, our American past is a past uh, of terrorism for black people in this nation when they were enslaved and oppressed and excluded and marginalized and um, made to feel second-class citizens because that's how they were treated. Um, so that message and that notion and that narrative that white Christians are raised with in America divides us from our black brothers and sisters. So it's not only idolatrous, it is divisive. Um, and that's important if you, uh, certainly if you read the New Testament and you read about how seriously God takes division among his people, um, he is a jealous God and will not share his people with any other. So if we, um, you know, uh, if we sort of resonate with that idolatrous message, then we really have no claim to be the people of the God who will not share his people with anybody else. Um, that message also divides us from other non-white groups in America, certainly native peoples, and there's loads of uh, indigenous Christian people in America. And if we resonate with a message of making America great again, you know, we're looking back to this time when um, genocide was committed among native peoples, so they were pushed off their land. And um, sort of, you know, Latinx people and, and other Hispanic groups um, who are Christian, this divides white Christians from, from them as well, from our brothers and sisters who are, who are Latinx. It's, um, it's a highly divisive message, and uh, it's, it's highly problematic um, uh, for us to assume this. Uh, Christian nationalism, that is to say, is, is highly problematic um, just for those reasons. Christian people are constituents of the kingdom of God, which unites us uh, to other Christian people of any and every ethnicity and from every and any nation. And we cannot be captured um, by our nation, even if we are white people that live in America 
and love it for a thousand reasons. Um, this is the reason why Moses says to uh, the Israelites, be very careful not to make images because the inappropriate association of the one true God with any created thing is so easy to do. It's the most natural thing in the world. And that is one of the reasons why, or maybe the reason why, um, Christian nationalism is so popular and so many white Christians assume that America is a Christian nation because we love it. And this is the story that we've been told. It's, it's the most natural and subtle thing uh, to do. A couple of other things about idolatry that we find in Scripture that relate to this um, and why idolatry is so subtle. Uh, idolatry always flows from our best motives. Idolatry always flows from our best motives. Idolatry is not this dramatic turn to the dark side. You know, kind of a Star Wars vision of good and evil is so simplistic. The depiction of idolatry in Scripture is so subtle. It's such a subtle reality. Um, Israel wanted uh, national security. Obviously, they're a, remember they're a, a liberated slave nation brought into this land. Uh, situated in the midst of these powerful empires. They want safety and security. And by the way, God wanted safety and security for them. They wanted assurances. You know, they're, they're supposed to be this new nation in the midst of the nations, and they're weak and vulnerable. Um, and so when you, as a nation, when you relate to your neighbors, what's, what's the basic thing you do as, as a matter of uh, international diplomacy? you make treaties, you make agreements, you know, you kind of see what your leverage is and, you know, have, make agreements, you know, in order to protect yourself. Interestingly, this is one of the things that God said repeatedly to the Israelites not to do when they get into the land. And think about all in the history of Israel, think about all the kings that uh, intermarried or took multiple wives. That was not because they had a sex drive that was out of control, um, intermarriage between nations was how you guaranteed national security. So the desire for security, the desire for certainty, um, these these seem like, you know, uh, obvious goods. Uh, but for Israel, they became the source of idolatry and they became the source of the turn to worshiping the gods of other nations in order to guarantee security for the people they love. They could have told themselves that they're operating from their best motives. It's just the natural thing to do. So in the same way, I think it's um, we need to give a serious consideration to our, our vision um, as American Christian people. Do we blend uh, the worship of the one true God with our loyalty to America out of desire uh, for security, for safety, for certainty, to guarantee for our children um, you know, uh, a good future and, and safety from harm and all that kind of thing? Or are we thinking about our lives uh, as Christian people who have, um, at the start of our discipleship, given up everything, sworn our loyalty only to the exalted Lord Jesus because of our being joined with his death? Um, we don't have the option to give our loyalty uh, to anybody else, even our nation. We are not uh, you know, Christians that belong to America. We are Christians that live in America because we belong to the kingdom of God. Another thing about idolatry, um, 
Idolatry can result from wanting to accomplish God's ends. So God has ends for his people or aims for his people or things he wants to give to his people. Uh, he may even have a commission that he has given to his people, um, but he wants things accomplished in a certain way. And that's that's what we have to attend to. So God wanted Israel to have national security, but they would only get it if they remained a vulnerable people who formed relationships with the nations uh, so that they were leading them in the worship of the one true God, which is a, a monumental task. Um, and if they behaved as a nation of justice for the poor, if they looked out for the poor and the orphan and the widow, God would have protected them. So God wanted security for his people, but he was going to provide it. They sought to provide it on their own. That was the turn to idolatry. Consider also uh, Adam and Eve. Um, you know, the one prohibition that Adam and Eve get in the garden is that they cannot eat from the tree of super wisdom. I love John uh, Walton's discussion of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, uh, that the Hebrew expression for that uh, basically captures uh, super advanced wisdom. Um, you know, having a big brain to understand how the mysteries of creation and all of that. Um, that was God's intention for them to have super wisdom, to have the knowledge of good and evil. That's that's what God has. God has the knowledge of good and evil. Um, that's not the experience of evil. Um, it's just the, the the advanced knowledge that understands the mysteries of how the, you know the world has been created. Because Adam and Eve were in a situation of relative naivete at their when in the garden situation, God wanted them to grow into that over time, not to grab for it before they were ready for it. So God wanted that for them, but that was a gift for them to receive from God only in a certain way. Um, Eve and Adam short-circuited that. And the grab for it, the grab for what God wanted for them at the inappropriate time basically was idolatry. At least that's how Paul interprets it in Romans 1, where uh, humans exchanged the image of God, or they changed or exchanged, however you translate that verb, they changed the image of God and became in the image of the serpent, basically, something within creation, which um, idolatry always dehumanizes. Um, we are the image of the transcendent creator God. We're not the image of um, something within creation, a serpent. Um, think also about Jesus's temptation. When uh, Satan tempts Jesus in the beginning of the Gospels, um, right before he starts his ministry, Satan does not tempt Jesus to not be the Son of God. He tempts Jesus to be the Son of God through some other route than the cross. He tempts Jesus to be the Son of God in power without going through the cross. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus is now the Son of God in power, but he only got there by going through the humiliation of death on a cross. That is the way that God's end uh, of Jesus being the Son of God is accomplished. So um, idolatry uh, can flow from wanting to accomplish God's ends in an inappropriate way. Um, my goodness, this is this opens up so many areas uh, for reflection. I think on our um, on the part of our churches. Think about uh, how the values of efficiency work in our in our culture. 
uh, thinking of the most efficient way to accomplish something, uh, the value of power, um, how money corrupts everything in our churches. Um, oh man, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower in Mark 4, he talks about the deceptiveness of money. And money plays such a major role in evangelical culture, evangelical organizations, and churches. Um, I think it was Kevin Cruz in his book, oh no, I'm forgetting it right now, uh, One Nation Under God, I believe. Uh, he talks about how um, early in the evangelical movement, when evangelical Christians in America left the denominations, they need new sources of funding. And so they turned to Christian businessmen. And an alliance was formed uh, between entrepreneurial Christian businessmen who had made loads of money um, as funders of the new evangelical Bible schools, Bible colleges, seminaries, and churches and organizations that were growing early in the 20th century. Um, and in return, uh, colleges and seminaries agreed uh, to propagate sort of um, uh, a certain vision of capitalism uh, as obviously biblical. And he goes into detail about how that worked itself out. And uh, my goodness, the history of the last 100 years has, has demonstrated the success of that. Uh, money plays such a prominent role in white evangelical culture and it has shaped our evangelical institutions and our churches. And um, it, on, on one level, we've had quote-unquote success. Uh, we can point to many of those things. But I, my question would be, is it success? Or have we basically become in the image of something in the world, something powerful and impressive, and have submitted ourselves to the, de uh, the deceptions of money? But just to say idolatry can result from wanting to accomplish God's ends in an inappropriate way. Uh, and finally, um, oh, such rich things to think about here too, idolatry always destroys bodies. Idolatry always destroys bodies. And uh, we see this in 1 Kings 18, when um, Elijah is battling with the prophets of Baal, and they're calling out to Baal for six hours and gashing their bodies and screaming and screeching and going through all kinds of carrying on, um, and Baal never answers. Um, they have to destroy themselves. Uh, also, uh, the worship of Molech uh, in the Old Testament era involved child sacrifice. So I um, idols basically destroy human life, uh, and our worship of them involves the degradation and destruction of bodies. Um, in Romans 1, after Paul talks um, about the change and exchange of uh, the image of God and of the truth of God, um, he talks about how um, uh, their bodies were dishonored. Um, when we, our worship of the one true God is, is human glory. We, we come into our full selves as humans in the worship of the one true God. And by worship, I mean the whole of being Christian. I'm not talking about 18 minutes of singing on a Sunday morning. Um, but any service to anything else inevitably destroys bodies, which I think is a rich notion for reflection when it comes to so many things. Certainly in uh, evangelical culture, uh, patriarchy is a massive issue. Many of us just assume um, some kind of uh, patriarchal vision of things 
Um, and that has had a strong strand throughout American history. It's almost characteristic of American Christianity that it is uh, hierarchical with um, you know men set over women. And uh, what I what it, what has been pointed out by many women, by many writers, is um, this has devastating effects on female bodies. Women are controlled, and women are are made to feel responsible. Uh, for inflaming men's sex urges and uh, made to feel guilty and and uh, blamed for that. Well, to my mind, the dynamics of idolatry lie behind that. Um, is there a desire for control uh, on the part of Christian men? Yes, I think there absolutely is. I think control is an idol. Um, the desire for clear, you know, for clarity as far as, far as how families ought to be structured. Um, you know, the whole sort of focus on the family movement, which is its own kind of an idolatry. In the New Testament, the church is not made up of families. The church is a family. Um, but uh, the whole focus on the family drive uh, since the 70s has created a culture where we basically have an idolatry of the nuclear family, um, seeing that as somehow some kind of an ideal, forgetting that in the Gospels, um, Jesus calls us all uh, to join the one new household of God and that we are Jesus's family. Uh, we may have nuclear family units, which is how the American government has decided to number us, um, but that's not uh, God's basic design for family. God's design for family is to uh, be among the people of God, the church. Uh, family can be negotiated in some other way, um, under the rubric of church. But patriarchy lands on and does violence to female bodies. Um, you know, the complaints and um, you know, the, um, the protests of women who um, are under control or who are dominated or made to feel guilty and often abused in patriarchal settings um, are right uh, to, you know, to cry out against this. And um, to my mind, this is all best interpreted in uh, a context of idolatry, that we don't uh, have a women's issue in our churches. We have a men's issue. This is, um, yeah, our whole culture uh, has, I think, to um, examine ourselves and uh, take a, a close look at this to see if we have drifted away from God's design for being human. And also, uh, this is a great lens for understanding whiteness. Um, my goodness, uh, Willie Jennings does just an absolutely fabulous job of demonstrating how it is that uh, Christian theology has been um, articulated within uh, a colonial um, lens. It's been articulated within colonialism. It's been articulated within capitalism, and it's been articulated within whiteness. And American Christianity um, basically associates uh, Christianity with whiteness. Whiteness has overtaken evangelicalism and uh, American Christianity, so that the ideal Christian is seen as the white man. Um, and that, of course, destroys non-white bodies, which is what European Christians had to do in order to establish this Christian nation. Genocide against indigenous peoples and the enslavement uh, of African people. Um, 
By the way, when I'm talking about whiteness, I'm talking about an ideology or a lens or a way of seeing. I'm not talking about white people. Um, whiteness affects all of us, whatever uh, ethnicity and race we are. Um, whiteness actually gives us the notion of race, um, where we where we see ourselves having these identities as white or non-white. And by whiteness, I mean the centering of uh, whiteness and the decentering um, of everything that is not white and everything that is not white has its value in relation to the inherent obvious uh, goodness and value of whiteness that is idolatry um, it is the association of what is obviously good um, uh, in, in an inappropriate way um, I say that it's idolatry based on what Paul has to say in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, where he talks about um, uh, how uh, Gentiles were shut out from, uh, from Israel. Israel had shut out uh, the Gentiles and had not formed relationships with them, bringing them into the worship of the one true God. Rather, Israel had become an idolatrous people, and um, part of that is they built walls around uh, themselves and did not, and basically passed judgment against Gentiles, cut themselves off from them rather than bringing them into the life of the one true God. Because of that, um, Paul identifies circumcision in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 with idolatry, the sign of Israel. Um, Paul calls idolatrous. He talks about the circumcision that is made with hands and every time that expression made with hands appears in the Old Testament, it always refers to idols, things that humans create and then associate with God. Um, and because of the corruptions of biblical Israel, I'm not saying anything negative about um, Jews or Jewish people, but this is just Paul's analysis of what has happened to biblical Israel. Um, they had become an idolatrous people, and the sign of their election had become idolatrous, which I think is a rich notion for reflection on contemporary uh, discussions of race. Um, it's one thing to be a white person. I'm a, I'm a white man in America, um, and I'm loved by God. But it's another thing to be a victim, along with all the rest of us, of the ideology of whiteness. And I'm in process um, of trying to figure out, how do I get my discipleship to Jesus detached from my thinking about myself as a white person? Um, or how do I configure myself as a white person within my discipleship to Jesus rather than, um, uh, I should say, while sort of escaping from the ways that whiteness um, configures our culture? Whiteness does configure our culture. I mean, white spaces are seen as more valuable than non-white spaces, white neighborhoods, uh, when we talk about good schools, all, Robin D'Angelo covers all this in her book, White Fragility. Uh, when we talk about um, good schools, we all know we're talking about white schools. Um, good neighborhoods are white neighborhoods. So our our vision of what is good and bad has been so, it's been so racialized um, that it has corrupted our vision of so many things in our lives. And so my question is, how has whiteness done that? Whiteness has destroyed indigenous bodies, and it destroys non-white bodies. And um, you know, this is basically the burden 
that so many are, um, uh, you know, trying to wake us all up to uh, that Black Lives Matter, um, that Black Lives Matter too, in a national context that has said white lives are the ones that matter. So there's so many more things um, really to cover about idolatry, um, but I'm 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 trying to bring a lot of these thoughts together, and I thought that this um, venue would be a good one for that. Um, would love to hear thoughts about this. Um, you're welcome to push back on something that I've said. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Well, there it is, episode uh, four in the bag. Next week, I'll have a conversation with uh, Kristen Cobes Dumay, who's the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Brilliant book that uh, I enjoyed um, just a month or two ago. My daughter's reading it. Friends are reading it. Uh, so that'll be a fun discussion. Um, I get to talk to her tomorrow, and I'll have the discussion uh, ne- next week's episode, barring any technological disaster. Have a super week. <laughs>